Hello, and welcome to today's edition of Tabernacle Today, a podcast maintained by the Tabernacle located in Danville, Virginia. The following sermon is by Dr. Danny Campbell, senior pastor at the Tabernacle, and was recorded during our Sunday morning service. Additional information about the Tabernacle can be found at our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. Our prayer is that you will be blessed by the Word of God today. Turn in your Bibles as we join Dr. Danny for another edition of Tabernacle Today. Thank you guys for glorifying the Lord with your musical abilities. Praise the Lord for that. Uh, and we saw it uh, last night, didn't we? Uh, a coach and a quarterback can glorify the Lord too through their coaching and playing. As uh, if you stayed up and watched the end of the game last night, Dabo Sweeney and Trevor Lawrence gave glory to God for uh, the abilities to play and thanking him for the win and all those good things. Turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 20, our last Sunday morning message of the year. It actually starts in Luke 20, 20, which is pretty cool, isn't it, since 2020 is about to come up. And with the ebbs and turns that the sermon uh, schedule takes, that's kind of neat that that worked out that way, and it did. Have you heard about the bus filled with politicians that was driving from one campaign stop to the next? When all of a sudden the driver lost control of his bus, he ran off the road, the bus flipped over several times, and it came to rest in a farmer's field. The farmer heard all the commotion and he went out to see what had happened. He came to the wreckage, read the campaign slogans on the bus, and he went to work burying the politicians found in the wreckage. Well, the next day the state police came around. And they questioned the farmer, and they said, so you buried all those politicians? Were they all dead? And the farmer answered, well, some of them said they weren't, but you know how those politicians lie. (laughs) I always, at the end of a year like this, like to do a message that relates to going into the next year. And one thing we know about this coming year, in some ways like the last is, there's going to be a lot of politics before us this year. The country's just been through an impeachment in the House of Representatives that was far more about dislike for the president than any substantive charge, and it was a shame on the character of our nation to have something like that go on. In Virginia, in January, the governor and the legislature look set to try and make Virginia as pro-abortion a state as New York, and it looks like they're set to make unprecedented attacks on the First and Second Amendment as well. And all year long, the presidential election election promises to be charged with emotion and overshadow all other stories. And then you might have seen this past week. I mean, we uh, even as we were celebrating Christmas, and uh, we had such a great month celebrating Christmas here at the Tabernacle. But the uh, things just kept grinding on, didn't they? The this and the that, and the back and the forth. So-called evangelicals like Mark Galley of Christianity Today. You might have read about him this past week and him doing an editorial questioning evangelicals who had voted for the president or still supported the president and those different things. And of course, way back at Bryan College in the 80s, I read Christianity Today and said, this is not a Bible-believing thing. If it was at one time, it certainly isn't now, and I haven't treated it as such since, and many of you have not either. But he said that no Bible-believing Christians should support the president, and Bible-believing Christians like Franklin Graham fired back with many reasons why we still should. And it is set to be a long year. But fortunately, today's passage in Luke actually gives us the opportunity to take a closer look at our posture towards some of those things. So if you haven't got there already, turn to Luke chapter 20, verse 20. 
And we read there, it says, so they watched him. It tells, the verse before tells us who it was. It says, the chief priests and the scribes that very hour sought to lay hands on him, but they feared the people, for they knew that he had spoken this parable against them. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be righteous that they might seize on his words in order to deliver him to the power and the authority of the governor. Then they asked Jesus, saying, Teacher, we know that you say and teach rightly, and you do not show personal favoritism, but teach the way of God and truth. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, Why do you test me? Show me a denarius, a Roman coin. Whose image and inscription does that coin have? They answered and said, Caesar's. And he said to them, render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. But they could not catch him in his words in the presence of the people. And they marveled at his answer and kept silent. So today I want to talk to you about the 2020 challenge and make a very specific challenge to you as we go into this year. First of all, in these verses 20 through 22, we, uh, we see the effort to discredit Jesus through politics. As we've been preaching through Luke, we've come to the week that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. Now, actually, tonight, as we look at Daniel chapter 9, and my message tonight is titled The Most Important Chapter in the Bible on Prophecy, because Daniel chapter 9 is, we're going to see that Daniel had a prophecy of the exact timetable from a decree made in 445 B.C. that would go out to the time that Christ rode into Jerusalem and was ready to take on the sins of the world on the cross. Amazing how uh, detailed the Scripture is in that, and we're going to look at that tonight. But after his triumphal entry, Jesus spent a few days there in the temple. He taught and he healed, and the crowds were hanging on his words, and many proclaimed that he was the Messiah. They were starting to see those connections between between the Messiah's teaching, his miracles, and the fact that Jesus did all those things. They were also probably looking for that political ruler that would overthrow occupation like Roman occupation and set up his kingdom from Jerusalem because those were the two major sets of prophecies about the Messiah, that he'd be a suffering servant and that he'd also be a conquering king. And we can forgive them after several hundred years of Roman occupation for wanting to go right on to Christ ruling on earth in a perfect earth uh, rather than having the sin-stained world that we still find ourselves in today while we await for his second coming to do those very things that the prophets spoke of. Jesus had just made clear that the Jewish leaders of his day rejected that he was the Messiah and they wanted to kill him. And that very rejection meant that instead of all the prophecies being fulfilled in one coming, it meant there would be a parenthesis. We're living in that time now. We're benefiting from that disobedience by having this church age where the gospel has gone to the nations. And it's kind of like the stopwatch got hit when he went back to heaven and the stopwatch will start again when he raptures the church and there will be seven more years of tribulation and all the different things that God plans to do in the future through Jesus ruling and reigning from Jerusalem in his millennial rule that uh, we talk about as we go along. Well, verse 20 is so poignant. It says, those who had rejected him, they watched him. And the word is usually designated here, the one that says watching, they were watching him, it usually means watching to catch doing something wrong, watching to entrap. It's used in the Gospels mostly of these Pharisees who were trying to catch Jesus doing something wrong. I think about season ticket holders for a team, right? Uh, ready to cheer if something happens in front of them they like, 
but ready to jeer if their expectations are not met. They were judging him rather than realizing the one they would stand before in eternal judgment one day was standing before them. I'll tell you, when you bring that kind of mentality into the church, I have always far preferred church members who come to church feeling like teammates, you know, that, that we're in the holy huddle here, right? And we're, we're getting on the same page together, and then we're going to go out and serve in this world for Jesus, right? We're, we're teammates on God's team, and those that are ready to serve rather than having that spectator mindset. In 2020, may the tabernacle have servants of the Lord, not spectators who judge the pastor and others. Amen? Amen. Well, they sent spies looking to trip Jesus up. They wanted to get Jesus on record saying that Caesar's authority should be challenged because they knew that if they could go and report to Caesar's government and play the videotape, you know, uh, that Jesus had said that uh, they ought to overthrow Caesar, that they could really have Caesar's folks come down, arrest Jesus, and kill him, and they would have their Jesus problem taken care of. They didn't want Jesus around, and so they were ready to reject him. Being under Roman authority, they could not execute anyone like in Old Testament days. You know, the Old Testament uh, thing for uh, to uh, execution was stoning, right? That was what was called for when somebody blasphemed or did something worthy of death. And it's interesting that there's three different Old Testament prophecies made hundreds of years before Christ came that actually said something like that he would be cut off, that's in Daniel 9, that he would be pierced, that's Zechariah, and the psalmist too wrote about that. So you had these prophecies, and yet the ways that Jewish folk would have executed somebody was by stoning. So all these things are moving toward his execution at the hands of the Roman authority, but they're going to be complicit in it. So they come to Jesus and tried to butter him up in verse 21. Do you see it there? Uh, Teacher, we know you tell it like it is without fear or favor. So they give him their question in verse 22. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Beware of flattery, right? Because people will come and flatter you, and then you'll let your defenses down, and you'll say something they might use against you. And Jesus was on guard against that, and so he was ready for it. They thought they had him either way. Because if he said, don't pay them because Israel is rightfully its own country, and all those prophecies talk about the Messiah ruling from Jerusalem one day, if he had said that to them, take them on, don't pay taxes to them, there would have been many ready to join him, but he would have been arrested immediately by the Roman authorities. But if he said, pay them because Rome is the rightful authority, the crowds would turn on him because they expected Jesus to be that overthrowing conqueror right then. And so they thought they had him, right? Oh boy, we've got him. Either way we win, no matter how he answers this. They were looking for that gotcha moment. And I am a bit tired in life of gotcha type people, aren't you? Oh, we've got him now. We've got him now. We couldn't get him for this, but we'll get him for that. And we see that in different ways, whether it's supporting your sports team or whether it's supporting different things that you're involved in in life. And uh, I am a bit tired of the gotcha stuff in our politics and our sports and all the other things that are out there. They were looking for that gotcha moment. But I love the fact that the Bible says and illustrates that you reap what you sow, right? I think about old Haman in the book of Esther. He wanted to catch Mordecai the Jew. And so he built gallows to hang Mordecai on, but God brought it all back on his head and Haman wound up hanging on the gallows that he had erected for Mordecai. So they were trying to discredit Jesus through politics. But he brilliantly answers his critics. That's verses 23 through 26. Jesus was not going to let them off the hook for their role in his coming death. He perceived their craftiness. 
It reminds me of John 2.25 where the Bible says Jesus didn't need man's testimony about man for he knew what was in a man. He knew what a man was thinking. He knew what the women were thinking. As God, he is omniscient. And so what a burden for him to be on earth and to know their thoughts and what they were thinking even as he was talking to them. He knew what these guys were all about. So he says, why do you test me? Why do you test me? And then he said, show me a coin. Show me a denarius. Whose image and inscription is on it? What did they answer? Caesar. Caesar was on their coin. Now, some of those same coins that they might have looked at actually said something like Caesar is Lord on them. And then on the other side, there would be pictures of a altar of this kind or that kind, something about Zeus worship or this worship or that worship and different things. So the coins were a mixture of making too much of the politician, but also making uh, much of the Roman gods and the things like that. We think about our money. One side's got a president usually and some other figures sometimes. The other side has Masonic symbols and things like that. Somehow that got on our money, got slipped in and on our money, didn't it? But the inscriptions and the images on the Roman denarius were both repulsive to the Jews, reminders that they lived in a country that was not under God's law. And so you wonder how they would have looked at Jesus with bated breath as he was looking at that coin. Undoubtedly, he did know it was Caesar's picture on there, but he was illustrating to them some very important things as he asked them, and they said, that's Caesar's inscription on there. The crowd was not dumb. They knew that this moment was coming. Jesus, in fact, had just said, you're testing me. So they probably knew that this was a bit of a trap. They knew that Jesus had said this was a test, and the crowds were probably looking and saying, how's he going to answer that? He answers it wrong. We're not going to follow him anymore. And uh, he answers it right, he might be killed right now. We might have to be ready to fight right now, those Roman officials and those things. Jesus answers with the amazing words of verse 25. Render, therefore, to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And verse 26 lets us know the immediate impact of Jesus' words in that day. It says, they could not catch him in his words in the presence of the people. And they marveled. The people marveled at his answer and kept silent. The ones that had come to criticize him marveled at his answer and kept silent. So how does this advance the flow of Luke as we go through Luke's gospel? We're going to see in the days ahead, their effort here failed and their efforts would repeatedly fail to get Jesus to say something or do something that would make Rome want to arrest him. They were going to have to be complicit in his death and in his execution as he had been prophesying that he would be handed over, not necessarily taken. We're going to study those things in the weeks ahead. But for today, we have a little more thinking to do specifically about this verse, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and render to God the things that are God's. We're going to look at what render to Caesar does not mean and we're going to look at what it does mean. What render to Caesar does not mean? It does not mean that our faith does not apply to the public sphere. Our faith absolutely does apply in every area of our lives. Pastor Lamar wrote a great little booklet about it, about Christians' involvement in things like politics, and it was a a bestseller uh, back in the day and helped him purchase a car uh, back in the days of the moral majority when he led that. And we've still got copies of that if you want one of those at some point. But Abraham Abraham Kuyper said, There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine! 
And that involves everything we can think of. As Paul said in Colossians 1.16, I'm going to substitute Jesus for him here, okay? So in Colossians 1.16, Paul writes, all things were created through Jesus and for Jesus. And Jesus is before all things, and in Jesus, all things consist or hold together. All the molecules in all the atoms in all the universe are held together by Jesus himself, right? And if he decided to stop doing that, we'd just be nothing as far as the physical goes. He is before all things, and him all things hold together. The Bible makes very clear that every human thought, every human word, every human action will one day be judged by God. For the non-believers, it'll be how severe the judgment of hell is for them in the lake of fire later. For Christians, it will be part of our personal, very personal and poignant time of evaluation and reward before the Lord, where at that moment we'll know, oh, I've been talking about being a good person for years. I'm not a good person, am I? (laughs) And the Lord will say, no, you're just another sinner saved by grace. But he'll also be able to reward that which was thought, said, and done for him. Those in authority, those who have been in authority over something, whether it's a a parent, a a boss, uh, whether it's a pastor, whether it is a Um, public peace officer, whether it's a mayor, a governor, or uh, in the Congress of some kind, or in the, uh, the king or the president of our country, all of them will have to give, anybody in any kind of authority will have to give an account for how they exercised that authority. And all of us who have been under various authorities, and by God's grace, there are some things that were the authority over, and there are other things we're under authority, and those of us who have been under authority will have to give an account for how we've served under the various authorities that God gave us. And so uh, this all matters. If you're a believer, your faith's going to make a difference in the way you parent, in the way you play sports, in the way you serve in the military, and the way you vote. I mentioned sports, and last night it was so interesting, wasn't it? Some of you didn't get to see the game, and many of you don't care, and that's okay. That's why I like soccer, two-hour commitment. Football's a four-hour commitment these days. Um, But at the end of the game there, I remember telling Elizabeth, I was like, oh my goodness, this is shaping up to, I didn't say God moment, but she knew what I was thinking there, because I actually did say, it's fourth and four for Ohio State, and they should go for it. Because if they kick that ball to Clemson, it's shaping up for that quarterback who's under the favor of God to take that team down the field and then win the game. And that's exactly what happened, isn't it? And wasn't it interesting? I, I don't know how much God cares about the things, but he's sovereign over all. And Ohio State was going for that last touchdown there, and a player tripped over his own feet. Or did an angel trip him? <laughs> Clemson's guy catches the ball and they win. Several million people watching. Dabo Sweeney, the coach of Clemson, has the microphone in front of him. He's going to I'm going to give all glory to God. Trevor Lawrence comes up and he quotes Ephesians 3.20, right? And a God moment came because God is sovereign of all, and he's going to give you moments like that in victory and defeat to show your praises for him, just like we saw him glorified God through the music this morning. Your faith will make a difference in every sphere of your life. Uh, I love my college's motto. I went to Bryan College, Christ above all, right? Christ is above all. So render to Caesar 
does not mean that six days of the week you can live like the devil and try to be like an angel on Sunday. It does not work that way. And I want to go down a quick rabbit trail here with you. I call it a sanctified rabbit trail in your notes. A man named Niebuhr, I'm not recommending the book, he was more of a liberal Christian, but he wrote a book that gives helpful categories, five different ways he talked about how our relationship with Christ and a Christian faith relates to culture, and by culture he meant the world system of thought. It involves politics, it involves what Hollywood does, it involves all those different things. And the first one was Christ over culture. And that was the old Roman Catholic view of looking at things, right? When Europe had the countries, but then they all had the Pope they looked to. And the Pope had the power to excommunicate kings. And so kings were told, hey, as you govern your country, you better do it in a Catholic way, a Catholic-friendly way. And the Pope's going to tell you what that is, um, because uh, if not, we can deny you communion, king. We can excommunicate you, and that means you'll go to hell. The Pope had that power under this very bad way of looking at things biblically, right? And so when Emperor Theodosius did a massacre and went too far and killed too many people, it was a disproportionate response to something that he was facing. Bishop Ambrose of Milan refused to serve him communion until he repented. And guess what? The king came to the foot of the pope and repented so he wouldn't go to hell. Christ over culture. Now, what happened is the Catholic Church became so corrupt that the legacy in Europe is they're tired of kings and (laughs) popes and the church, right? But that was that way of thinking it, that everything should be a theodicy, God over it. That's what the Muslims think. They think where there's a majority of Muslims, that that is a house of peace. But where there are not a majority of Muslims, like France or somewhere like that, that's a house of war. We need to war against that place until it becomes majority, and then we can implement Sharia law. That's how many of them think. Not all, not some of the ones that run convenience stores around here, something like that, but many of the rabid ones that wind up turning into terrorists actually think that needs to be implemented. Now, Martin Luther came along and he said, no, it's Christ and culture in paradox, right? So there's things you have to do at your job. There's things you have to do at your workplace. You don't want to dishonor God as you do that or as you serve in the government. But the government's got to do what they got to do. And the church does what it's got to do. And so really, do that over there. Do this over here. And, um, you know, separation of church and state kind of thing, right? And that is not what our founding fathers had in mind. They wanted Christians to be involved in every area of society, But Thomas Jefferson wrote a letter and used that phrase, and it became known as church doesn't come here, state doesn't come here. But our founders never would have thought that their faith wasn't to be involved in the public sphere because our founding fathers said, this government will not work if we're not a moral people. It just won't work. It'll fall flat on its face if we all don't have a common sense of being under God. Then there was the Christ of culture. This has been more of the liberal Christian response. And if you know me, you know that I don't think those that deny the inerrancy of the scriptures and deny that Jesus is the only way of salvation, I don't think they're true Christians at all. So I think there's a lot of churches that we see, and I would call them apostate churches. And they go back to Darwin's teaching where evolution ransacked the church in Europe, led to higher criticism in Europe, and they made the word of God the words of men instead. They stopped believing that you needed a savior, instead that you just need an example And for every age, Jesus is the best example of whatever the world promotes. 
And so in our day, people that believe Christ of culture, what they would say is, and you hear a lot of religious language like this, you hear this from Mayor Pete Buttigieg, one of the Democratic candidates, if the highest virtue that the society loves is tolerance, we'll find those examples in the gospel of tolerance, and that's what we'll talk about all the time. That's what we'll call church, rather than calling anything sin, rather than saying that anybody needs a savior. Jesus is just our greatest example of love, and they pull out those verses on love, and they make all those that disagree the evil Pharisees, right? So if we think that truth matters, we become Pharisees in their thought, Christ of culture. Christ against culture, well, that was the fundamentalist response, right? That was those that said, hey, listen, the world's going to hell in a handbasket. We've got the church over here. We need to be very clear what we're for and what we're against, and so there's a lot of against language. And that's some of our heritage here, and it's some of our heritage as evangelicals. Because we believe in absolute truth, there are some things we call sin and are against, and we stand there, right? But then finally, Christ, the transformer of culture, and that was your Billy Graham and Jerry Falwell type response. So Christ changes us individually through salvation, and then he takes us, trained in medicine, trained in law, trained in this, trained in that, teachers, etc., and we go out into the public sphere, and our influence there helps change things for the good. We don't have a pessimistic view like Martin Luther did, and it's in paradox. We believe that you can make a difference as you go out and shine the light in the government, in the schools, on the sports teams, and those things. So hopefully that's a helpful way to you to think about where you have come down and how you're going to engage to make a difference in this world through Christ. Now, Sometimes I'm a little bit Christ and culture and paradox. Sometimes I'm a little Christ against culture. Sometimes I'm a little Christ, the transformer of culture. And, but the thing is, we do believe that everybody out there needs to be saved, right? And so we give them the gospel and we share the Lord with them. But I also a lot of times come down in that final one that our impact can make a difference and so let's do it. And that's why we are looking and saying we can make an impact in that neighborhood. Let's do it. We can make an impact in that school. Let's do it. And so the more optimistic faith Danny Campbell gets right down there to that last one there. So people who don't have a biblical faith look to politics with religious fervor. Because they do, we who preach the Bible are often accused of preaching politics. Folks, I have no interest in being a political preacher. It's never had a lot of interest to me. But here's the bottom line. Because so many clear moral issues that are clearly defined in the scriptures have been made into political issues, not by us, but by those constantly assaulting them, we have to shine the light of God's word on those issues. And if you do, you'll be called a political preacher. You'll be called a political Christian. But what we're doing is trying with love in our hearts and regard for the truth to say, listen, uh, Whatever the Bible calls sin has built-in consequences that will be experienced if you participate in that sin. You just have to mark that down. And we love you enough to tell you that, just like Israel's prophets loved Israel enough to call them to the, back to the law, right? And we call people to God's word and say, please, please understand that Jesus can save you. Jesus can change you. You can have his light make your world different. First where you are and then go on. So, As we look at the world, we say, hey, life begins at conception and should not end until natural death. So there should be no abortion or euthanasia. That's not being political. That's being biblical, right? Genesis 1 and science agree that there's only two genders, male and female. Facebook is up to 125 or so. Man, they're getting creative with different things. 
but uh, we preach and proclaim what the Word does. The Bible makes clear that marriage is to be between one man and one woman, and sex is only for procreation and bonding within that marriage commitment. Everything else is sin that needs to be repented of. And when it comes to public policy, we want to speak as those who get to participate in the political process for those things. So, render to Caesar does not mean failing to be involved. We have to be involved as part of our faithful dispatch of proclaiming and shining the light and being salt. Amen? But what does render to Caesar mean? It does mean that we are to faithfully fulfill the duties of each sphere God places in. When I say duties, I want you to think of the words job description, okay? Job description. Do you hear that there? What it means practically for 2020, it means politics is not to consume us. Some of y'all are fixing to have an awful year because it's all you're going to think about all year long. You're going to listen to talk radio and you're going to watch the, this station or that station. You're just going to be consumed and eat up with it all year long. You are to be involved, but you're not to be so consumed by it that you lose your witness and all the other things that God has out there for you. People with no faith make politics God. We resist that. We're not going to play in that game, are we? Our faith shines in every area, but the Bible does acknowledge practical considerations. Think about Romans 13.1. It says, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. And then in verse 4, Romans 13.4, it says, governing authorities are God's minister to you for good. And the word there is deacon. So you got deacons who serve you in the church, and we're told that the authorities, police officers, and the laws that we have, the laws, those are also a kind of deacon, a servant for us to help us have order in our society. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. You got some Romans 13 things to look at there. And then 1 Peter chapter 2. And there he writes, Therefore, verse 13, submit yourself to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king is supreme or to governors as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men, as free yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God. And then listen to this key verse 17. Honor all... Love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Kind of sounds like 4G living to me, right? I've told you last year, last couple of years, that you ought to do everything for the glory of God, for the good of your fellow man, to get the gospel to non-believers, and to help your fellow believers grow, right? 4G living. Fortunately, America was put here by people who had a higher view of freedom than the ones that when Paul was writing. You do know that Paul wrote... And Peter wrote those two passages we just read, Romans and 1 Peter. They were both executed by evil Emperor Nero. And so if they were able to find a way to honor Nero, even as they only worshipped God, then we can find a way with the mix of things that happen in our country as well. Look at what John F. Kennedy said in his inaugural address in 1961. The rights of man come not from the generosity of the state, but from the hand of God. Our founding fathers believing that changed everything, and it's why our participation as Christians here in America is such a wonderful privilege that we have, because that was 
what our Declaration of Independence said. We're endowed with our Creator with certain rights, right? Life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. By the way, that's my tears for my voting also. Life in a class by itself, if they're not pro-life, I can't vote for them, period. I believe they'll be wrong on so many other things. Then liberty, all the different things related to that. And then finally, the pursuit of happiness. So I guess you'd put your economic things there. That's just how simple Danny Campbell keeps it in trying to use a biblical framework and use that historic rights that we have from the Declaration of Independence. And then our, our beautiful Constitution, all founded on the idea that we have inalienable rights, things that cannot be taken away because there is a God that we're all going to stand before one day. It's the loss of that common belief that makes government overstep its bounds, whether it's here in America increasingly or whether it's in the totalitarian regimes around the world that are just like the environment the early church experienced, uh, those poor Christians in China. But you know, they've just served God and kept growing, haven't they? 10% growth every year, 1% of the population when the missionaries were kicked out, maybe less than 1 million Christians then, I think they said 800,000, and now... Uh, 10% growth every year, 100 million or more maybe Christians there. They've prospered as they've tried to be as good a citizens as they could underneath that evil regime, but they put God first and they continue to serve him. What does it mean to be under authority, to think about that job description? When you're under authority, you have a job description to fulfill, and that's what you're giving to Caesar or your parents when you're under their authority, or your pastor in church, your teacher, your coach, your boss. What are our duties as a citizen? <laughs> to pray, right? Timothy tells us to pray for those in authority to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Wherever they're deficient in truth understanding, we want them to come to the knowledge of the truth. First, we want them to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. It's our duty as a citizen to vote. I don't have much time for those that say, I, I, I just hate them all, so I'm not going to vote at all. My goodness, people have died uh, protecting this country and advancing our rights, and you can't go vote, even if you have to hold your nose as you do it? Hey, we understand the deal, right? When there's only two parties and one of them's going to win, you say, hey, listen, can I support the top one, or can I support the second one, or can I support the platform that are there? And sometimes you are going down to your second and third things and saying, yeah, this at least is better than this. And so I'll vote for this. And Franklin Graham encouraged Christians greatly before the last election that way. Make it your default setting to obey the laws of the land. There is a time for civil disobedience. We'll talk more about that in just a second. But the default setting ought to be to just say, hey, thankful for the laws we have. They protect us and all those different things. But don't let politics consume you. Being a citizen is only part of you and who you are. So give your boss your dedicated effort during the workday, fulfill that job description. Give your family your attention when you get home, fulfilling that job description. Give your church Sunday and Wednesday night, but if you're only going to come on Sunday mornings, it may as well be to the tabernacle, amen? <laughs> so let's not be a church always saying, man, come back on Sunday night. You keep telling them that, they'll never come back ever. You know, they can, get to, they can find that church that just meets once a week. Well, I believe in what we do on Sunday night and Wednesday night, but let's just let grace and love reign here, okay? Let's just do that. It's going to be a challenge for you to keep it all in perspective this year. Don't render too much of yourself to Caesar and forget the other spheres of your life. Well, here's the two times where to practice civil disobedience. First of all, when the authority tells you to do that which your faith will not, not allow, don't do it. Think about Exodus and the Hebrew midwives. Pharaoh said, you've got to abort those Hebrew kids. And they did not do it. And God blessed them for their civil disobedience. 
The law was evil. It was against the law of God. They went with God instead, even if they could have possibly been killed for doing that. And the second one is, when the authority tells you not to do that which your faith calls for, do it anyway. Do it anyway. And we think about Daniel and prayer, right? Uh, they passed a law that said, if we can catch anybody praying to anybody but the king this month, we'll kill them. And uh, Daniel did what he did every day. He opened up his windows facing Jerusalem, and he prayed the same way he did ever. He didn't change a thing about his faith expression. He was not going to be un behind those shutters. He was going to do it the way he always had. And so you have the right to talk to anybody you want about Jesus. Be smart about it at work. I, we had a great member back up in uh, Waynesboro that really had a great way of doing it. He was uh, over a bunch of Starbucks, and he uh, loved the Lord and knew how to evangelize and witness and stuff. And so people that he'd go to, he'd go to the individual stores, and they'd say, hey, what's your secret? And he said, you really want to know? And they'd say, yeah, yeah, I really want to know. Do you want to know enough to talk to me during your break where it's not company time? Oh, yeah, 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 I'll, I'll do that. Yeah, you're the boss anyway. We'd love to have coffee with you, okay. But it's our time, not the company's time, right? Either during the break or after work. And he had more than one people say yes to that, and he got to talk to more than one of them about Jesus and led more than one of them to Christ. Be innocent as doves, right? But wise as serpents, Jesus said. Well, here's the 2020 challenge. You've been waiting for bated breath for, for. Here it is, the 2020 challenge. Spend 20 minutes in Bible study and prayer daily before spending any time on media, including social media. Before you watch or read the news or listen to the talk radio, spend at least 20 minutes in the Bible and in prayer. How would that transform you? If it's been a while since you've really spent regular time in the Bible, start with Matthew. Go all the way to the end. Master the New Testament in the year 2020. Do it several times through. I love the whole Bible, and on Wednesday nights I'm teaching through the Old Testament right now. I'm going to read the whole Bible through this year, but I'll read the New Testament through three or four times. And then the second one, give public thanks 20 times during 2020 for answers to prayer. We're going to help you with that. We're going to modify the service uh, in 2020 so that in the back when you come in, there's going to be a baskets with little things like this in there. Not necessarily this color. They're just going to be in there. And then we're going to have vases up here, two or three of them up here. And whether it's during the singing time or during the time of the invitation, if you've been praying about something and God's given you that answer and you know the answer's come, whether it's a yes, whether it's a no, whether it's a you need to wait longer and you know that's the answer that he's given you, a year, two, ten, whatever, and things like that, then just get you a, uh, one of these in the back when you come in and then during the singing time or during the time of the invitation, just kind of bring it up and drop it in. Say a prayer of thanks and go back to your seat. And we're not going to make that a legalistic thing. We did that up in Waynesboro a couple different... It went so well one year, we carried it over to a second year, and it transformed our mindset of thankfulness for those it did. Others just got more annoyed with me, but that's okay. I, I don't know if I should say this or not, Brother Lamar, but I so appreciate it. He gave me some great advice when I was first here. Somebody gave him a real hard time when he first got here, and he said, look, this is the way I am, and it's going to be like this my whole time here. You may as well get used to it now, because I ain't changing. And uh, I love that. Thank you for that, brother. But those are the two challenges there. Why don't you bow your heads?
Thank you for joining us for today's edition of Tabernacle Today. To learn more about The Tabernacle, please visit our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. There you may access additional Tabernacle Today podcasts as well as other resources. If you don't have a church home or happen to be visiting the area, we'd love to welcome you to one of our weekly services. Thanks for listening, and we look forward to seeing you back for another edition of Tabernacle Today. Tabernacle Today.